Hello, my name is Mallory Jenna Robinson. Join me on A Hateful Homicide, a true crime podcast dedicated to telling the stories regarding the murders of transgender, gender non-binary, and gender diverse community members in the United States and abroad. This is A Hateful Homicide. 911, what's your emergency? Yeah. transgender woman has been shot and killed in North Baltimore, Alpha. In the U.S., trans women of color have a life expectancy of just 35 years. This happens on a daily. Another one of my friends got killed right up the street from here. These cases are true. The victims are real and their voices matter. This is A Hateful Homicide. The murder of Yoshi Tashida, the man with no face. Friday, November 13th, 2015, Tokyo, Japan. Warning, the following episode may contain audio evidence of misgendering. Listening discretion is advised. から、僕の話し方や身のこなしが他の男子と違うからと、ひどい暴力を振るわれていました。僕は僕であってはいけない。誰かの振りをしなくてはいけないなどとずっとそう思っていたんです。3歳ぐらいからもうあの自分はゲ
For transgender students, the situation can be even worse. In order to attend school according to the gender they identify with, schools often require them to obtain a diagnosis of a mental disorder. Without this, they are forced to wear uniforms they don't identify with, they are denied access to bathrooms, and they are slotted into gender segregated school activities. This year, Japan's National Bullying Prevention Act is up for review. This is a crucial opportunity for the government to address some of the weaknesses in the policy. Most specifically, they should name categories of students who are vulnerable to bullying, including LGBT students. The Japanese government has an opportunity to signal that harmony in schools should be achieved by including everyone and making everyone feel safe. It's Friday, November 13th, 2015, in the city of Tokyo, Japan. It would be the backdrop where 38-year-old trans-Japanese male Yoshi Toshida would reside. And when his body was discovered without a face that Friday the 13th morning, it would leave the city of Tokyo tackling for justice for years to come. Welcome, my audience. Thank you all so much for tuning in to Season 4, Episode 4, The Murder of Yoshi Toshida, The Man With No Face. It all began in its capital of Japan, the city of Tokyo. Originally a fishing village named Edo, the city became politically prominent in 1603 when it became the seat of the Takawana Shogunate. By the mid-18th century, the 1900s, Edo was one of the most populous cities in the world with a population of over 1 million people. Now, fast forward as of 2018, there is an estimated of 38 million residents and also the city's proper has a population of 13.99 million people. Tokyo is located at the head of Tokyo Bay and it has the prefecture forms part of the Kanato region on the central coast of Honshu. This would be the home, especially in the Fuchsia district over near the JS Fuchsia Railroad Station. This would be the backdrop in the home for again, our 38 year old trans man, Yoshi Toshida. His home, his safe space where he was murdered, where the hateful homicide occurred, it left the city questioning its sense of safety and also the safety of its community members who identified as LGBTQ+. As you could hear in the initial audio evidence, this was actually a testimony and an interview from Yoshi as well as several other um, queer and trans individuals who not only navigated their journeys as youth, but then also talked about the experiences that they faced in schools such as bullying, harassment, and even in some cases being suspended from school for simply identifying and expressing in their truth. And so what you could hear was is Yoshi as well as several others, you know, talking about their own experiences. And Oshi kickstarted the audio off and you could just really um, hear his angst and just the trauma that he endured as a trans man who began his journey as a youth back in 1994. Um, so by the time this interview was conducted in 2014 by the Human Rights Watch, it had been 20 years um, at the very least since Yoshi had been, um, been in his gender journey. But what we want to do now, my audience, is discuss exactly how today's episode is going to go. We're going to not only, we've heard from Yoshi about his own experiences, um, but also what we want to do is hear from other individuals who um, have lived in Japan, especially a trans man by the name of Jesse. Um, he talks about his identity, not only in the United States, but also in Tokyo. And then we also have a very interesting video around like, the community of Japan specifically, not necessarily knowing the acronym for LGBT. So it's really interesting um, to hear how people um, 
I guess, connect with the term LGBT over in Tokyo. Some people knew what it meant, and unfortunately, a lot of people did not. So that goes to show you that we still have a lot of work to do over there in our beautiful, beautiful continent of Asia, especially our country of Japan and its capital of Tokyo. And then, of course, we're going to hear from our incredible vlogger, Raven Noah. This is my sister from the East Coast. She commented on last week's hateful homicide, the murder of Samuel Edmund Damien Valentine for our episode four for the fourth season. So, again, she has a commentation and a definitely an expert opinion on the hateful homicide of Yoshi Tashida. So, without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. It all began that Friday, November 13th of 2015. It was around 5.30 a.m. when 28-year-old trans Japanese female Akira Toshida went into her father, 38-year-old trans Japanese male Yoshi's room. The two had came back home around 1 a.m. that morning um, from a night out and also from getting some items that Akira was getting ready to um, head to the United States to visit some extended family. And so her and Yoshi had done some shopping prior to this. They both got home around 1 a.m. And um, Akira wanted to go check in on her father. She stated around 2 to 30 a.m. She could hear a loud noise, a yell, a scream, some kind of muffle. However, she didn't get up to check because she believed that her father, who loves to watch television, sometimes at a very high volume, and she thought that it was just an episode of one of his favorite TV shows. She returned to bed, and when she woke back up around 5 a.m. to get some coffee for herself and for her boyfriend, 32-year-old cisgender Japanese male in May, Hikado, she wanted to also see if her father wanted some coffee as well. When she went into his room, this two-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment on the second floor in the Fuchsia District, this western suburb residential area of Tokyo, when she knocked on the door and didn't get a response, she opened it just to pry in and see if her dad was okay and how well he was resting. But when she walked through that door, what she discovered would leave her shaken to her core. She opens the door and discovers her father, Yoshi Tashida, without a face. A gruesome discovery of nature that left her completely discombobulated and yelling out for help. Her partner, Inmei Hikado, immediately got up and went into the room of Akira's father, Yoshi Tashida. They both saw this terrible, terrible tragedy that bestowed this incredible, handsome man who was not only an advocate for trans youth, but also who had taken in individuals and adopted them as his own. This incredible philanthropist and human rights leader ultimately was found without a face in his first bedroom, main bedroom apartment. However, when the 911 call or their emergency line was reached out, one of the things that Akira stated in the 911 call was that she believed her father had been mauled by his dog. When she entered the room initially to check on her father and discovered he had no face, part of that gruesome discovery was discovering that his dog was um, eating at his face, mauling at his face. And so this led her to believe that there was some kind of attack, which is, explains the 2 a.m., 2.30 a.m. yelling from due to the attack of the dog. And this resulted in the, the vicious, vicious accidental death of her father. When Detective Kanai Doi came onto the scene, he was determined to really understand exactly what happened to this man. He was very cognizant of the fact that this was a family of the trans experience, and he was very aware of making sure that he wanted to utilize the correct pronouns and really affirm everyone's gender journey. Though there were some media reports of misgendering, 
One of the media reports did mention that Akira and Yoshi, prior to becoming father and daughter, potentially had a romance. And one of the things that Detective Kanaido, as he's starting to go through this investigation, right, he's not only having himself and the to- Tokyo law enforcement team coming through, canvassing, knocking on doors, seeing who has heard what, but he's also reaching out to his forensics team to backtrack Yoshi's phone. He's also going to reach out to the coroner who's going to do a proper autopsy to assure if this death was accidental by a dog attack or either it was a hateful homicide. All of these things are simultaneously going on as Detective Kanai Doi is interviewing initially Akira Tashida, Yoshi's daughter, and Akira's partner in Mehikado. The two had differences of opinions when it came to the living situation between father and daughter and daughter and her partner. According to Akira, she and her father and Inmei all got along. So much so to the fact that he was the main reason why she began her gender journey, especially the medical transition portion. Yoshi, who had undergone several gender-affirming surgeries and HRT, hormone replacement therapy treatments, um, had in success in his own right, became the man that he so desperately wanted to represent to the world and for himself. And so he was a great mentor and, um, and support for Akira. And so much to the fact that that was one of the reasons why she was going to the United States as well, um, to see about getting some more affirming procedures and surgeries. Akira shared this with Detective Kanai Toy and wanted him to know that, you know, she loved her father. She appreciated him. The two had known each other at this point for seven years. She described it as lucky number seven. And from 2008 to 2015, the two had this incredible bond like no other. He officially adopted Akira in 2011, and that is when she moved into the Fuchsia apartment with him. He had a second bedroom, and of course, this is his daughter. He opened his home. By 2014, when again, the initial audio of the Human Rights Watch was released with Yoshi's own testimony, this is around the same time when Akira met in May in 2014. The two hit it off at a bar. He seemed to like her, enjoy her. They moved into her place with her father, into her bedroom. And that is where they lived for the next year and a half until the hateful homicide on that Friday the 13th of November 13th, 2015. Detective Kanai Doi then went over to Inmate and asked him his own perceptions and take of his relationship with Yoshi as well as Yoshi's relationship with his daughter, Akira. Well, according to Inmei, he and Yoshi didn't quite get along. And sometimes Akira and Yoshi didn't get along. The father and daughter would butt heads on who knew what was best. And according to Inmei, Yoshi felt that father knows best, not only from who Akira should be with, but also the necessary steps she needs to take in her medical transition. Inmay stated that this push and pull, this tug of war on the best steps, the next steps for Akira, caused so much tension and chaos between the father and daughter that by the time she was getting ready to head to the United States, specifically Arizona, for some medical procedures, this is when they had this major fallout. Of course, Detective Kanaido was shocked about this, and he went back to Akira and asked her about this potential disagreement. Well, she stated that Inmei was misunderstood, that the two had differences of opinions, but that was a typical family riff. She knew that herself as a trans woman, her journey was different than her father, who identified as a trans man, and so the two would sometimes differ on what that would look like for her. But nonetheless, she loved her father. She thanked him for the mentorship, the guidance and support. And also for the time when she first met him in 2008, um, she was experiencing unhousedness. So she expressed her appreciation for him opening up his home, his heart and his willingness to adopt her and bring her, bring her into his family. So again, now Detective Kanaido has these differences of opinions. As the Tokyo law enforcement team are going around canvassing, neighbors mentioned that they unfortunately did not hear anything between 2 to 30 a.m. on that Friday the 13th morning. And so um, one of the things that they, the, the law enforcement team, was questioning was, 
the apartments um, are very closely adjacent together and the walls are thin. And so this was baffling for detectives trying to figure out is if Yoshi, who was being mauled by a dog in his apartment around 2 a.m., screaming, yelling, this would be a very brutal and painful process and attack to go through. Certainly someone must have heard something. Well, that is when Detective Kanaidua again went back to Yoshi's daughter, Kira. She stated that, again, in her initial interview with him, which was just a few hours before, that she stated that she thought she heard a scream or a yell, but she attributed it to her father's love of television, anime, and sometimes there can be yelling and screaming, and she didn't think anything of it. And so maybe, according to her, this is what the neighbors thought as well. However, the neighbors said, and this was the neighbors who was directly adjacent to Yoshi and Akira's apartment and also across the hallway, both stated that they didn't hear anything. Um, And one of the neighbors, particularly um, her boyfriend, stated that he was actually up around 2.30 and he didn't recall hearing any noise. So when Detective Kanaidoi brought this to Akira's um, attention, she stood by her truth. Detective Kanaidoi left in May and Akira to process their grief and then also had to inform Yoshi's extended family too, including his parents, his grandparents, as well as some siblings. When they found out the devastating news that their 38-year-old son and loved one had been brutally found without a face, this left them shocked and saddened. They wanted justice for their son. They talked about how he first came out. Again, back in 1994, at the age of 17, he knew as early on as his junior year of high school, his truth. Always identifying on the masculine spectrum, he expressed masculine, he presented in a masculine way. He began vocal lessons to have his voice become more masculine, beginning hormone replacement therapy. Yoshi, at the time of his death in 2015, was single. He had some series of relationships throughout his very, very incredible life. But nonetheless, he was primarily focused on the advocacy work, the work around youth and inspiring and aspiring them to be better and live better. He, who had came from a life of middle class, knew all too well that unfortunately some community members, even in Tokyo, didn't still have the same access or privilege that he may have had. So paying it forward, one of the things that he wanted to do was make sure that he provided some sort of safe space for youth. So before he adopted his daughter, Akira, Yoshi was known throughout the city of Tokyo and especially in the suburb area of Fuchsia for opening up his home to other huge trans um, BIPOC youth and young adults and young people, but he was also known for just being willing to speak up for the injustices of the youth as well as the young adults in Tokyo. He was not the only one. There were others who were inspired by Yoshi's work, and for the next 30, excuse me, 21 years, you had this incredible man who was just doing a lot of advocacy work in Tokyo. He would connect with the Human Rights Campaign of the United States, as well as the Human Rights Watch, which led to him being part of this video campaign on raising awareness around bullying. However, I want to shift gears and talk about, you know, the experiences of another trans man. His name is Jesse. Jesse, who has been in his truth for quite some time, wanted to talk about his first year of living as a trans man in Tokyo, Japan. Exactly, um, since I moved to Japan, and I kind of wanted to talk um, about my experiences being here um, and living and working as a trans guy in Japan. I wanted to kind of cover like a bunch of topics um, about the things I went through this past year. Um, kind of um, going back and explaining um, everything, I guess. Um, so, like the first first part is um, coming out. About a year ago, um, I arrived and um, and nobody knew like um, about you know me transitioning and stuff like that. Especially my close family here, um, and so um, I was still in the closet and stuff like that. And um, I was I was really scared to come out at first when I when I moved here, um, so I sort of got the courage 
you know, up. And I, I mean, it's like it's something you can't hide forever. So at the end of the month, I came out to my grandma because I knew that um, she would be. She was. She's always been really close to us since um, we were living in Japan when we were younger before we moved to the states. And um, I knew that she. She's somebody that I can talk to and be open about.、Um, so I told her and my struggles and and that I used to help like self harm a lot. Back in the states, because I struggled a lot with my gender problems, and and that I've always felt like a guy, and、um, and and that you know, and I told her that you know I was I I already started hormones and everything, and and she asked me about that, and she and I told her that I I really struggled a lot through it, and I just really wanted to tell you,、um, and so she was she started crying, and then she was kind of holding me, and I think she was really worried about. Um, the things I went through and stuff like that, and she was accepting right away. <clears throat> and I told her to start kind of telling, you know, everybody else and stuff like that. So that kind of spread. She told, you know,、um, my neighbors and people that we used to know when we were younger.、Um, and and surprisingly, everybody was very very accepting. <clears throat>、um, so that was really nice.、Um, they, you know, respect me by my chosen name and stuff like that. And Um, and there's some few people that、um, you know we haven't told, but I mean it's not like they're very close. So、um, so everybody around here pretty much knows.、Um, so that's been pretty positive coming out.、Um, and yeah, the acceptance part was really good. I mean especially the people we used to know.、Um, and then a couple of months later, I mean, obviously I came here to find a job. So that was one thing that was kind of kind of tough. I I had a hard time,、um, hard time like filling out my resume because at the time this was you know January last year,、um, I still didn't have my name change,、um, and、uh, so I sort of had to put my birth name, my birth you know gender marker.、Um, so it was really really hard for me to move forward because.、Um, Like I didn't get all that done. I was like, I just can't go into a job.、Um, you know, like it just was really hard for me to make that first step of, you know, going to interviews. I went to like,、um, I think I went to two interviews. I was gonna go to a third one, but I got the second one at the dollar shop, so that was fine.、Um, but so for the resume, I just put you know my original information. And then you know I just went whatever you know eventually when I get used to the environment the workplace I can eventually come out and tell everybody、um, about it so I just because I really wanted a job I just because if I didn't have a job I would have to go back and the funny thing is、um, it's interesting because like、um, we had a flight return return flight on March 11th when the earthquake hit and that's crazy because like、um, because at the time the earthquake. Would have happened. We would have been in Tokyo, like at the airport, and that was the day we had to go back. If I didn't get a job, and like I had a lot of pressure from, you know, my parents about getting a job, you know, and I personally wanted money because I wanted to get surgery done. I need money, so I mean, just sort of the money kind of took over all these, you know, like just I wanted money, so I just went into it. Just you know, whatever I can get is fine. I the, and I'll worry about the other stuff later. So then、um, I got my second job at the dollar shop, and then. Um, and then I did my name change.、Um, like once I went, once I got hired,、um, I didn't tell them anything. I was hired as female,、um, and then so I kind of.、Um, So they and nobody knew about it. And the interesting thing is that like I found out later that a lot of people, some people thought I was a female, some people thought I was a, I was a guy. And then they saw my birth name, so they figured, oh, that's a female just because of my really feminine name. And then eventually,、um, I I kind of you know at the interview I lied and said that I was going to be having my name change、um, be, because、um, because sometimes people in Japan they change their name sometimes because it it might.、Um, It might be seen as like bad luck or something. Like some some names, 
like kind of have bad what do you call it like bad fortune i don't know how to explain that but so there's some reasons people change their name and that's that's like a really good reason so i just told them that and that i'll be changing their name and then when i get all the information changed um that i'll show you the information so you can get it changed into the uh into the system so then that eventually happened um a couple months went by um it started getting really really tough hiding you know my trans identity while being on testosterone and and every day I would wake up like not wanting to go. I didn't want to get up. Um, it got really hard. Sometimes I would call in because I just couldn't go. I just I couldn't just pretend, you know, while my voice was dropping and and I had to be pre I had to pretend like somebody that that I'm not. And um, I would wake up like two hours early so I can do this stupid voice training bullcrap and trying to get my like voice higher so I can you know, trying to get my high voice up so they don't find out that, you know, my voice is dropping. So that was really, really tough. Um, and then eventually we actually, um, we actually had a, the first manager we had, he was kind of like um, a manager for like many different stores. So he wasn't around most of the time. So it's, he wasn't somebody that I can talk to. And he wasn't, I don't know, he seemed like a cold person. He didn't seem very friendly. And sometimes he comes in still into our store, but um, he's just, I don't know, he just seems kind of cold and I felt like I couldn't really talk to him. So then finally I found out that he was going to be, you know, he's not going to be our net manager anymore and we're getting a new manager. So I was like, yes, that's great. And as you could hear, he was excited about the fact that, you know, they were getting a new manager. But you can also hear Jesse struggle. And this video came from 11 years ago, back in circa 2011. And so um, by this time, he had already been in his journey for a year. Um, and again, this would have been very similar to around the same time um, that Yoshi was working with trans youth, especially trans men who were coming into their journeys. And so Yoshi had worked um, with Jesse you know just helping him navigate right because you could hear Jesse's journey of being you know one of coming out disclosure what to share what not to share the reasoning for wanting to be affirmed um, even coming up with um, explanations as to why his voice is getting deeper or why he's changing his name and these are very common things that we as trans folks especially those who are trying to like be under the radar or stealth sometimes as it's called because we don't want to cause any of that attention because again we know far often discrimination um, Jesse most likely especially around this time of circa 2010-2011 could have and would have been most likely terminated um, due to disclosing and so of course the way that Jesse um, went about their journey was absolutely necessary and pertinent not only for economic survival but also for their gender identity survival and so again, Yoshi was really pivotal in helping individuals like Jesse and others who were youth and coming into their own as young adults really find their truth. You could see even still around this time in 2011, and again, Yoshi had been in his truth at this point for 17 years by the time this video came out, and it was still as challenging to be a trans man in Japan as it was for um, Yoshi in 1994. So I wanted to take a moment to share with you so that we could kind of have a little bit context of the type of journeys that our trans men in Japan go through and then really want to you know talk a little bit more about our incredible Yoshi born January 6th 1977 to Lee May and how Yoshida Toshida, excuse me. He grew up with two sisters and a brother. He's very close. He was very close with his grandmother. Wow. And the two had an incredible relationship, very similar to how Jesse had one with his grandmother. Um, wow was the first person that Yoshi came out to in 1993, specifically at the age of 16. Because she was concerned for her grandson, she, you know, initially told him to think about it a little bit more. But by 1994, I'm telling you, Yoshi said he was not staying silent anymore. He affirmed that he knew that he was not assigned female at birth and that his identity and his truth was that of a man, specifically a transgender man. Keep in mind, the terminology back in 1994 was still very nuanced. So the grandmother was still trying to process exactly what all of this meant. But nonetheless, she did support him. And then she would also go and tell her daughter, Lee May, Yoshi's mother, and then also Hal, Yoshi's father, her son-in-law. Nonetheless, he had an incredible abundance of love and support. 
And this would navigate him in providing that love and support to others, such as Jesse, Akira, and even Enmei. Then, of course, you have to look into his own life. Again, in 2015, Jesse, excuse me, not Jesse, Yoshi was 38. He was determined to continue to be the change he wanted to see. He was ambitious, driven. He had successfully not only went to college and received his degree in social work, but he had also started to really independently consult with a lot of our 501c3 nonprofit organizations that are focused on LGBTQIA plus community members. He began to do like a lot of um, consulting work with them, speaking on his own experiences, encouraging others to be affirmed in their truth and so forth. This was his line of work. Also in 2015, prior to his hateful homicide on that Friday the 13th, around 5.30 a.m. when his body was gruesomely discovered without a face, he was also looking forward to doing some more traveling. He was um, also wanting to go um, to Mount Kilimanjaro and be one of the first trans men of Japanese ancestry to go and hike successfully. These were things that he was looking forward to, not only to conclude in the 2015 year, but also for the 2016 year. He too had planned to travel to the United States to visit some extended family and also look into some other procedures after his daughter Akira would be returning. So he had a lot of plans and preparations for his future and the future of his family when all of that was abruptly ended on Friday, November 13th, 2015 at 5.30 a.m. in the city of Tokyo, Japan, over in the Fuchsia District. Again, Detective Kanai Doe was, he reached out to the coroner and the coroner said that Yoshi had been murdered, that he had been asphyxiated, um, and most likely drug. There was some kind of chemical that allowed him to um, get put to sleep very quickly. And the, the coroner was still trying to determine exactly what that was, but was able to trace that this subdued Yoshi. And ultimately he would have been rendered um, powerless to be able to stop anything that was going on. Um, when it came to the explanation around the, his dog mauling his face, the coroner explained that at the time when his body was discovered, he had already been deceased and the pheromones and the chemicals that was coming um, from this drug that he had been either, that he either took or it was given to him and most likely given to him, that the, the pheromones, the, the scent from his now, um, badly, his body that's now beginning to go into rigor mortis and lividity. It's releasing these these chemicals and this attracted the dog is almost like a pheromone and it resulted in this mauling attack, this response that the dog would have not typically had for his owner and his friend. And so all of these things were being explained to Detective Kanai Doi and he immediately asked his team to bring in Inmei and Akira. The both were brought down to the interrogation rooms at the Tokyo Police Department and was immediately questioned around the drugs that was in Yoshi's body, as well as the explanation around his hateful homicide being asphyxiated. Well, Akira stuck to her story. She stated that her and her father got home around 1 a.m. and that she would never hurt him. And Inmei stood by his story that, yeah, he didn't necessarily get along with Yoshi, that he thought that maybe he was an overbearing and overprotective father and when it came to Akira, but he certainly would never do anything to hurt the man who welcomed him into his own home. Well, Detective Kanai Doi had these differences of opinions and he still had to figure it out. And that's exactly what he continued to do. He continued to investigate and prod and looked into the forensics of Yoshi's cell phone. The reason he wanted to look into the forensics specifically around where was Yoshi's phone at the time of his hateful homicide was because he wanted to see two things. One, if Yoshi just opened the door since there was no signs of forced entry, or if Yoshi had left the home and then brought someone back. Sort of kind of like a maybe like hookup or something. He went and met the person and brought him back. Nonetheless, there was no evidence of forced entry. And so again, all of these things were coming into play. And Detective Kanai Doi was determined to understand what happened. And again, Inmei and Akira stood by their truths. He ultimately had to release them and then continue to investigate. But as he continued to investigate, his head, you know, he was scratching his head trying to figure out exactly who could have done what. The cell phone records ultimately proved that Yoshi never left home. He was there. So whomever 
committed this hateful homicide either was inside of the home when he was there or either he let them into the home later after Akira and Inmate went to sleep around 1.30 that morning. And somewhere between 1.30 and 4 a.m., the time, and this is the estimated time of death um, by the coroner, and by the time that Akira discovered his body at 5.30 a.m., he had been dead for at least a couple of hours or estimated a couple of hours, again, releasing those pheromones and those chemicals that then resulted in the dog's response, biological response to want to attack. All of these things was still trying to figure out. He was trying to put these pieces together. And as he was putting these pieces together, I wanted to take a moment and have you all hear from the community of Tokyo, right? What do the people of Japan think of the term LGBTQ? This interview was done back in 2021, done by a completely random uh, group of strangers who expressed their own opinions around the definition for the acronym of LGBTQ. Hey guys, it's Yuta. So, there's something I need to clarify. We don't have an established Japanese term for LGBT. LGBT is an English term, and that's why not every Japanese person knows it. But that doesn't mean they've never heard of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people. We just don't have a Japanese term that includes all of these people. We have terms like Dose Aisha, which means somebody who likes somebody from the same gender. But LGBT is much more inclusive, and that's why I used it in this video. チェックはい、はい、知ってます。どういう意味ですか何だと思いますか。え、わからないです。全く見えなかった。つかないです。なんかの略なんですか。ロジュラ。ロジュラ。ロジュラ。ロジュラ。ロジュラ。ロジュラ。ロジュラ。ロジュラ。ロジュラ
These were the questions that Yoshi's family had as well. They didn't want to believe that their precious Akira, who they had known as well for seven years, lucky number seven as Akira coined it, they didn't want to believe that truth. And they certainly didn't want to believe that her partner for a year and a half, Inmei Hikado, could be responsible as well. Yoshi loved them. He took them into his home. He gave them a place to stay. And this was something that really meant a lot to him. He adopted Akira. He considered her his daughter. She was his daughter for all legal and family intensive purposes. So the idea of something like this, where a familia side, right, patricide, where a daughter is going to commit a hateful homicide against her father and both identify as trans, this was truly groundbreaking and it made the case go global. There was a lot of speculations and debates on whether, again, if it was just the dog or if it was an overdose, accidental. But again, that coroner affirmed that he had died due to asphyxiation and also being drugged with this drug that would have left him powerless and renderless because there was no proof as to when he took the drug and who gave it to him right because Akira stated that they had came back from a night out shopping etc could he have drunken something and someone gave him something at a bar again all of these questions were still plaguing not only detective Kanai Doi but also the family of Yoshi Toshida Akira would later move from the two-bedroom home the home was covered with a tarp to really um, cover and, 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 and really provide and protect the integrity of the scene. She and Inmei would move out of the apartment by the end of 2015. And ultimately, as of 2022, the two are still residing in Tokyo um, and reside together. They have not been charged with the hateful homicide of Yoshi Toshida, and his case and his hateful homicide still remains unsolved to this day. Detective Kanai Doi stated in an interview that when more evidence points to the people that he firmly believes is truly guilty for this hateful homicide, he will then vigorously pursue these people and provide justice by making sure that he throws the book at them to the fullest extent of the law. As we prepare to conclude this case, I want you to just take a moment and hear from my incredible vlogger, Raven Noah. She always just provides like just such great intake. She too is an incredible black trans woman from the East Coast. I love her, I support her, and I always wanna make sure that her voice is valued in spaces like this. So please take a moment and listen to Raven Noah as we come back and prepare to wrap up. Okay, now the prince's name is a trans man. His name is Yushi or Yushai. Yushai. 38 years old. Now, this is a trans man right here. Okay. Now, um, I'm gonna call I'm gonna call him Yushai. I was gonna say Yushi, but she is S-H-E, so it's Yushai, S-H-I, S-H-I, Shai. Okay, forgive me, I'm butchering the name. I'm doing the best I can do. Anyway, I just thought this story needed to be brought out because I don't feel as though no one is really talking about it. And I just happened to Google something I saw it come up. So I wanted to let people know, you know, of all genders when it comes down to transgenders, trans men, we're all within the same circle when it comes down to the LGBT. But for some reason, to me per se, the trans men and the transgender women are more like family. Not that we're all not family, but we're more close on that schedule of the transitioning stage. So we kind of got to understand each other's struggle the best way we can. Anyway, the man said, so I'm going to say Yushai, Yoshai, 38 years old, had his face sliced off with a knife. Now, they're not sure if it was a knife or some type of sharp object, but this is the thing. The person who came home was 28-year-old transgender. Now, they didn't give out the name, so... The transgender came home, this is what was said, came home, went inside the room, they went out, came home, went inside the room, went to sleep, got back up, um, went into the room to go check on. Now, Yoshi had adopted the transgender. Now, in Tokyo, it is not it is not unnormal for an adult being adopted by someone, which is, you know, it's not uncommon in Japan. So, the two had, you know, they were, you know, as the father and the daughter, you know, taking care. And Yoshi lived in West suburban area house. Now, this is a picture of Yoshi's house. So this is the thing. This, the daughter had came home and found out that her father was inside of bed, still sleeping. Went into the room to go check up on her. This is allegedly, you know, it's the internet, so. Allegedly went into the room to go check up on her father and found out 
that his face was on top of plastic and his body was covered up, you know, in a blanket. So what happened was he was uh, he was murdered. And the thing about it is that the transgender woman, they said that was like two hours after the transgender woman came home and found her that, you know, her father was inside the bed dead. Now, the problem that we have here with this case is that, you know, they said the father was in a, a faceless covered inside of it. So what did the person put in her face? I'm just cut it off my face. And the investigation is still going on in Tokyo. Um, the Metropolitan spokesperson told them. Now, this is the thing. Of course, you know, when there is a murder, they're going to say, you know, they, I'm, I'm, this is how it goes. Don't blame me. Oh, it's like, okay, if me and you were inside the house together and I get murdered, you're going to be the person of interest because you were the only one there that was in the house with me. And if, and if it's not any breaking and entry, then there has to be someone who was anything. Now, I don't know if it was breaking and entry. It was not reported. However, they stated that the two, the trans woman and the trans man, used to have a lot of fights inside the house, allegedly. Now, it was a lot of emergency phone calls that were called from there, reporting there were loud voices of two loud fighting. Up underneath the investigation, so now the thing about it is that <sighs> the transgender woman found her father inside of the dead, and this allegedly, you know, the thing about it is that she's got to prove herself innocent, or all these points towards her. All things points towards her. Again, we are not pointing any blame towards Akira Tashida or Inmei Hikado. But like Raven Noah said, this case needs to be covered. There's a lot of misconstrued and contradictory evidence from both accounts, whether it's from Akira or her partner. But nonetheless, they both have still um, been proven not guilty of this hateful homicide and it still remains unsolved to this day, even going into almost eight years later. So please, my audience, if you know of anything, if you hear of anything, please feel free to reach out to me, DM me on Instagram, social media. I will make sure that I get this information over. Detective Kanaidoy is still an active um, investigator on this case, and so I will definitely make sure that he gets this information as well. As we prepare to conclude, I just want to say to our incredible, incredible brother and just handsome, vibrant, outgoing, positive mentor, leader, father, son, brother, Yoshi Tashida, born January 6th, 1977, and resting on since November 13th of 2015. We remember you yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever, and always. Thank you all so much, my audience, for tuning in to Season 4, Episode 4 of A Hateful Homicide. My name is Mallory Jenna Robinson, your host. You can follow me at MalloryJenna90 on Instagram. Please follow us on Instagram at A Hateful Homicide. You can also like us on Facebook at A Hateful Homicide. Check out our website at ahatefulhomicide.net. And then please, please feel free to share and continue to make sure that our victims get the voices that they deserve. Please enjoy the rest of your day, and I look forward to connecting with you all next week. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.